HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This program is brought to you by Juul, sous vide by Chef Steps. Juul takes the guesswork out of cooking. Learn more at chefsteps.com slash J-O-U-L-E. I'm HRN's Communications Director, Kat Johnson, with a preview of this week's episode of Meat and Three, our weekly food news roundup. It's Thanksgiving, so we're talking turkey with sweet potato casserole, stuffing, cranberry sauce, and pecan pie. But we're also discovering some surprising truths about this holiday. As it turns out, roasted turkeys are actually nowhere near the original Thanksgiving tables. In fact, most of the foods we eat for Thanksgiving today weren't eaten in Plymouth. And you know, a lot of the dishes came about, well, because of the products that were on the shelves and the marketing that told us this is the product we should use. Every once in a while, though, the consumer creates the food trend. Care to top the turducken, anyone? Uh, I've got to give credit to this fellow that said, this is the best pile of meat I've ever had, and then said, but if you added bacon? Tune in to this week's Meat and 3 on Heritage Radio Network, available wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I'm one half your host, Greg Bresnitz. On a special all-food episode today, we have Jeff Gordonaire, who is the editor of Food and Drinks over at Esquire magazine. We talk about the 2018 best of list, how he switched from being a music writer to a food writer, and the embarrassment that his kids have of ordering too much at the dining table. So sit back, relax, and here's another episode of Snacky Tunes. We talk about food, we talk about music, with musical dudes, finger on the pulse, Snacky Tunes. Hello and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I'm one half your host, Greg Bresnitz, sitting with Jeff Gordonier, the food and drinks editor of Esquire magazine, who has just told me that he is known as the trumpet. Yeah. At home, I'm known as, and that's one of many nicknames. Uh, I, my, my kids excoriate me for various things. One thing is talking too loud in restaurants. Another thing is ordering too much food in restaurants, which is a, an occupational hazard when you're a food writer. So they, they don't like it when I go in a restaurant and I'm like, yeah, we'll have the whole menu. And, and, and they're like, daddy, it's wasteful. No. Uh, <laughs> sure. And I think it's like one of those things where like um, we had Sam from Dogfish Head on whose oh, kids yeah. roasted him. Like yeah. <laughs> one of our favorite stories about how everyone comes up to him and they call him like Santa Claus. And I was like, is this kid going to realize in 10 years he's his, you're his best asset? I know. Like, are there kids? It's the same thing like growing up with the rock parents. Like, you know, it's like when Beyonce's kid hushes her at the award shows. It's like, do you know who your mom is? You're going to get to go to everything. You're not going to want for anything. There's like that weird window. Do you, you are set. You're yeah, set. I mean, I took, I took my son to Copenhagen in the spring. Uh, we went to Noma. He did not eat at Noma, but he did eat at Restaurant Bar and Sanchez and Based the, from Christian Puglisi. And, um, you know, the, the kid has been to Major Domo and Fish and Game up in Hudson, New York. And uh, my friend Stephen Satterfield, who's a, an excellent food writer and editor, recently met Toby, my 12-year-old, at Lhasa, a great Filipino restaurant in Los Angeles. And, and Stephen leaned over to Toby at a certain point after hearing all this and said, kid, you realize you're living the dream. <laughs> and the things though he doesn't <laughs> he doesn't really no he likes it he enjoys it um, and he's he's a very uh, astute critic actually with with just a few words in, in haiku form was that my phone or your phone my phone oh no that's my error we'll leave it on we'll leave it on no, it doesn't bother me okay so uh, I actually think it's a it's a note of reality um, yeah he there will be many notes of reality <laughs> they, they, they they don't mind obviously going to these restaurants and I see it as um a cultural 
immersion philosophy, similar to taking them to museums and concerts and everything. Um, um, Toby in particular loves Korean food, Japanese food, Chinese food, Filipino food. Um, and, um, you know, he's learned about all these different uh, countries and communities and cultures through our going out so much. Um, they just don't like when I order so much. I mean, th that, they just feel it's upsetting and kind of embarrassing, right? Because the, the table will be full of food. But we bring it all home, and I make pretty stellar breakfasts how, how with different, leftovers. How Let me tell you. I can imagine. I mean, fried rice, wow. you wouldn't believe what I can do with fried rice. I can make these amazing frittatas with leftover fried rice or um, biryani. I wonder amazing. If, I wonder if they appreciate dad's cooking leftovers more than the actual meal themselves. <laughs> they do like it. I, I also make frittatas with leftover like cacio e pepe. Cacio mm. e pepe. This is a pro tip. Seriously. Go to an Italian restaurant. You don't necessarily want the, the tomato-y sauce in the pasta, but if you get like a good pepper cheese or carbonara or something, bring it home. Next day, put it in a frying pan as is. Just dump it in. Put a little splash of water to kind of rehydrate it. Maybe a little oil or butter. You don't really need to. Meanwhile, scramble some eggs in a bowl. You know, whisk some eggs. Dump them in. Just let it settle and solidify. It's amazing. You cut it like a pie. My kids love that for breakfast. I know we were here for the best of list, but it's fine. we're done. Is, no, we're done. Thank is, you for thank you for being outside. This will change your <laughs> life. I think it's what the nonas do in Italy, from what I've heard, the, to with leftover pasta, and it's one of the many, you know, ingenious ideas that have come out of Italy. Was this similar to what was what was cooking like for you growing up? Um, were, I, did you I, have were, were your parents taking you to the best restaurants in uh, Southern California? Oh man, it's so complicated because I have to say yes. I mean, like, yeah, my my dad, my dad uh, grew up in the Jersey Shore, um, and at a certain point in his life, started uh, the upward ascent in in the corporate world in the seventies, sixties, sixties and seventies, and um, you know he hadn't necessarily had access to all that stuff, all the, the restaurants and stuff. Restaurants are ultimately democratic. You can just walk in. You know, if you have the money, you have the reservation, you have the time, you can go. Right. And so it was a badge of honor and, uh, you know, sort of an emblem of success for him that he, that he could do this. So, yeah, we went to, um, you know, we'd fly, we went to San Francisco uh, several times, went to the Mandarin, um, incredible Chinese food. I mean, the, the, the squab in the lettuce cups was like a game changer for me when I was a kid. Um, we went to New York. We, you know. A couple times he took me to Paris and London. I sound odious saying this, but it's the truth. And, and, and I did fall in love with restaurants. I think there's kids you know, who fall in love with theater. Um, and that defines the path of their lives. And for me, uh, it was all about music and it was also all about restaurants. I, I thought they were shows, like they were theater to me. They, I loved the lights, the lighting, the music, the the vibe, the the patter, the pitter-patter with, with servers. I, I, I thought the whole thing was like high right mm -hmm. and um all kinds of food you know when, when where i grew up um ultimately uh from the late 70s on was around pasadena california and um where julia child was from originally and where jonathan gold lived actually uh until he passed away um and Pasadena is, is a beautiful, pivotal place to live if you're into food because of the diversity of Los Angeles County. Um, right over one street, a certain direction was Monterey Park, which is some of the most exceptional Chinese food in America. Another, if you went up the hill on Allen Avenue into the foothills of the mountains there was incredible Armenian food. Over here was a chicken and waffles place. Over here was one of the best burgers places in uh, burger places in L.A. Pie and Burger, which kind of defined my life. Um, and and well, so you know, and I taco trucks everywhere. Incredible taco trucks. So so people like I'm sorry, I'm battling. I know, but, but what type of <laughs> what type of pie did you get? Oh, um, a, a lala berry, a lala berry. I still don't totally know how to say it, but um, that's one of the reasons Pie and Burger is is defining and beautiful. Um, a lala berry is a, is a is a, is a cal it's a berry unique to California coast grows uh, up by Cambria or Cambria there's debate on how you actually even say the town and I believe it only grows in clusters there for like a week right so people kind of harvest it in these big clumps freeze it and make pies and cakes and stuff with it throughout the year so the fact that pie and burger has that pie and sometimes only seasonally it's not available at certain times 
is uh, shows you just how deeply Californian it is. Um, I mean, jo Jonathan Gold was a huge influence on me when I was a teenager, when he started being published. Well, I mean, like Jonathan Gold, you also mentioned music, which anyone yeah. anyone who knows you or follows your Instagram thing knows that music is a huge part of your life. Yeah. What, I mean, I started as a music writer, really. Right. Where did you, what What were some of the first shows you went to? What was the scene? Oh, and, and what were some of the first music pieces that you wrote? Oh. Who did you cover? Oh, wow. Um, I mean, the defining show of my life was I saw The Clash when I was 14 years old. I'm not messing No, up. I believe you. No, come on. At the Hollywood Palladium, I saw The Clash with the English beat opening. They were the opening. That's game. like such an unfair answer. I know. No, I, okay. <laughs> Life was all downhill after 14. Okay. I think also we went to some killer taco truck for dinner that night. So, I mean, that was the most beautiful night of my life. We go to incredible tacos, see The Clash in the English beat. I was so elated and I danced so hard and just kind of rocked so hard that I, when I left, I took off a shirt and could wring sweat out of it. Like it was, <laughs> I was actually wet from this. And uh, um, I saw R.E.M. and the Dream Syndicate at the Hollywood Palladium. I saw bands like X. I mean, this was the heyday of L.A. Punk, the Germs. Um, the Blasters were kind of a neo-rockabilly band. X, Fear, the Dead Kennedys from San Francisco, bands like that. I was really into the punk thing. Um, and uh, I have a soft spot for that kind of Laurel Canyon, L.A. 70s groove, too. You know, Jackson Brown, um, Steely Dan, Warren Zevon, Tom Waits, a lot of those L.A. singer-songwriters from, uh, from the late 70s when we first moved there. Um, Jackson Brown actually grew up really close to where I grew up in a very old house. His family it goes back in California, like six or seven generations, and they don't like an old ranch house that now it's still, it's still there. And it's right in the middle of this very live, vibrant barrio um, that is kind of close to downtown LA. And then his fiddle player and uh, David Lindley, who's sort of famous um, partner in crime with Jackson Brown actually grew up in my town, San mm. Marino. So um, I don't know. So I'm sort of like susceptible to that thing. I know Jackson Brown's like the squarest dancer in the world. When I did the playlist for you guys, I was like, why did I not put The Road, the song The Road? We can, we from, can add if it If you can add it, yeah, from Running we, on we Empty. For, for those of you who don't know, um, you can go to snackytunes.com and check out our Chef Music Monday where Jeff recently did one for us. Um, there, I always love it because we'll, when we do that, um, all of the chefs that we talk to, you know, they're obviously busy running empires you're writing and they'll be like, and they'll write they'll come like, i'm running empires too you, you uh, i just want to be clear <laughs> I have four children <laughs> you have the wrong you have the wrong song i went through the list could you please swap that out you, <laughs> and i'm like i, I said yes all the time and you know it's the the, the connection to music is is yeah. in, in, is incredible um how did you make the transition from being a music writer yeah to a food writer and where do you see Obviously, the show is about food music. Where do you see the similarities in the two? Oh, in, yeah. Well, industries? they're both about pleasure to me. And they're both about where the cultural conversation is. The cultural conversation these days is, well, obviously, it's, a, it's political. But it's, but, it's, and, but it's also being acted out in the world of food. And, and um, what the chefs say, do, and cook represents what they believe and the way you pledge your allegiance to one or the other in a way reflects your own identity, your own belief system. And that was true of music for decades as well. Seems to have tailed off at a certain point. But I mean, to go to circle back to one of your questions, you said like, who would I interview? I mean, I interviewed uh, David Bowie twice. I interviewed Willie Nelson, um, uh, Van Morrison, which was a horrific experience. He was a nightmare. Um, a lot of those, those classic people when I was at Entertainment Weekly uh, and also Janet Jackson, um, Green Day when they were just coming up um, what shifted look music my identification with music you know was at its fiery peak in my teens and 20s of course I was like a you know college radio DJ at WPRB in New Jersey uh, then I was writing about music and I was uh, I was uh, the, like the local rock critic in Santa Barbara, California at the Santa Barbara News Press. I had a column called Exile on State Street because <laughs> State Street's like their main street. And um, at a certain point, 
you age out. You know, that's what's weird and sad. It's like you start connecting less to the music and you don't you you respect it. You admire it. You see what it's about, but it doesn't necessarily speak to you at that kind of molecular level. Right. And you're not uplifted by it as much. I mean, one of the last records I remember being having that experience with was Funeral by the Arcade Fire, you know, and, and some of the early White Stripes records. I was really fired up about those records. I mean, I saw the White Stripes at South by Southwest playing in the backyard of a Mexican restaurant in Austin. And I, I mean, true story. I was like, they weren't famous yet. They weren't really known. And I, I was like, holy shit, who are these guys? Like, this is so perfect and thought out. And, and you know, they have the, the, the clothing, the, the color scheme, the um, this, this mythology about how their brother and sister, I mean, and the music was fantastic. Um, I remember going around Austin right after that and telling all these other writers, like guys from Blender and Rolling Stone and, and uh, GQ and everything, like, you got to hear the band, the White Stripes, they're playing the next night. Um, saw The Strokes the same time I was there before uh, Is This It came out. So that stopped, that started happening less, you know, and you start feeling it less. And you're going through interviews with musicians as more of an exercise in abstraction. It feels kind of detached and cerebral and not felt. And um, I, 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 reached, I reached a moment, uh, uh, an inflection point, as my friend Ian says, when I was at Details Magazine, I was editor-at-large at Details for a while, and Dan Paris, editor, who's a friend, sent me to cover a Jonas Brothers concert at Madison Square Garden. That'll do it. Dude. That'll do it. I was like, I'm out. I felt so silly. I was like, why? I'm a dad. I'm in my 40s at that point. Why am I here? Like, this is so dumb. And then, and then um, I mean, they weren't bad necessarily. It's just like I didn't, that was, it was I no longer had a place in this, right? I, I saw so, Ariana, Ariana Grande about a month ago. <laughs> um, and, I mean, that would be interesting. And, and I watched it and it was a similar thing where I was like, I know that this is like what's going on. Yes. I felt dead inside. <laughs> <laughs> That's well put. <laughs> I, I went back to details. I wrote the story and I told Dan, I'm, I'm, I'm done with the music writing, by the way. I mean, I was a generalist there anyway, so it didn't matter that much. I just did cover stories and I did all sorts of crazy stories. I did a story on a guy who repaired sex dolls in California, broken sex dolls. I did uh, a story on a group of rogue body surfers in Orange County. who were almost like Fight Club. They were secret body surfers in this crazy wave called The Wedge. wrote about a mafia lawyer. So it's like, I'm fine. I can put music aside now. And um, Dan was like, one more, man. It was like one of those cop movies. You know, he's like, one more, <laughs> one, or, or like, a, you know, one more hit. You know, you're a hit man. And I was like, what is it? What is it? He's like, I'm going to send you to London to hang out with Oasis. And I was like, you know what? Yes. That's the way to end this. Yes, Let's not the, rock. Not the Jonas Brothers. <laughs> no, so I did. I went and went and it was. They hadn't fallen apart yet, and they they weren't good anymore. But they did. They did. I basically sat in a rehearsal in this giant, like almost airplane hangar, with Liam and, and Noel. They 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 would perform like they were in front of hundreds of thousands of people at Wembley for a rehearsal. So it was amazing. It was a private concert with Oasis, basically. And I was like, bye bye, bye bye, music. Thank you very much. That was fun. Um, uh, the food writer thing, um, my editor at Details Magazine, I had two great editors, Jessica Lustig, who's now at the New York Times Magazine, and Pete Wells. Pete Wells was my editor. Okay, He just edited my stories. For the, for the two people who don't know who Pete Wells <laughs> If you don't know who Pete Wells is, why are you listening to this? But he, he's, he's a restaurant critic of the New York Times. We have Times. Music, music people listen to this Yeah, show. I know. I, I, he's you know probably, I, not, I think he's arguably the most influential food writer in the world. And not everyone lives in New York. Yeah, yeah. He's a he's a friend. I mean, yeah. I'm not I'm not faking that. I've mean, yeah. been friends for a long time, and he he was a brilliant editor. Uh, and some of the pieces that he edited that I did at Details, like this piece about this radical polygamist fundamental fundamentalist polygamist compound in Southern Utah, got into that Dave Eggers book, Best American Not Required Reading. So we were we were on a roll, doing some good work, and. Uh, he got hired by the New York Times. I was actually at Momofuku Sambar with Pete Wells when uh, that was a new place. And he got a cell phone call and went outside. Now, if you know Pete Wells, that's very rare for him. He's, he's, he's a very gracious person. Um, he tends to focus on you when you're having a conversation. He's not texting all the time. or uh, I am, but <laughs> I'm completely rude. But he, he's, he's, he's a gentleman, right? And, and I, he came back 
from outside and he had this weird look on his face. I was like, you just got a job offer, didn't you? And he was like, how do you know? And I was like, because you just never do that. You never like abandon a, oh, sorry, my, that was my wedding ring. Um, and, and so um, he, uh, he said, yeah, I just got uh, asked to be the, the food editor of the New York Times. I was like, oh my God, holy shit, that's huge. Dude, how did that happen? And so um, eventually, it took a while, I mean, it took a few years, but eventually he brought me over to the Times uh, dining section, now called the food section. And what was one of the first food stories that you wrote? Well, well, let me rephrase that. What is one of the first food stories you wrote that you feel proud of? Yeah, well, this is the, this is the thing. What, what, what used to happen at, de at Details was, for instance, he sent me to, to Israel to write about this very strange radical figure. I, I won't get into the details here, but um, a, a very intense political story at a time when there was there was a lot of violence in Jerusalem. And um, Pete asked me to call, give him an update, a call. And I was like, first off, Pete, you would not believe the hummus at the American Colony Hotel in Jerusalem. It is extraordinary. And these olives, and he was like, what? And then when I was writing about the polygamist compound in Utah, I called him or emailed him or something. And I said, there is this, in Provo, this Mormon form of fresh mozzarella that you see in all the stores. It's curds. And he was like, oh my God. At a certain point, he's like, you should maybe consider being a food writer because you um, you always want to talk about that when you're on the road. I'd go to Memphis to write about a congressman and want to talk about the barbecue. So when he went to the Times, he sort of said... Um, Maybe we can talk about this. Because essentially I write profiles most of the time. I write about people. And he thought I could write about all the people in the food world. Um, my first piece for the Times was a profile. It's before I was on staff. It, I think he was kind of testing me. was a profile of Rocco Despirito and, and sort of what the hell happened to him. Uh, that When did that run? Maybe 2008? Yeah. So probably 10 years ago. And then I did a piece about eating insects and an insect feast insect-centric feast in Brooklyn. Uh, again, I that, it was a, that was definitely a test. I think partly what they were doing was to see if I'd make mistakes. They really don't like corrections in the New York Times. I didn't have any corrections on those stories. The stories were well-received. And so I was brought in. My first real profile was Gabrielle Hamilton when she had her book Blood, Bones, and Butter coming out. And I wrote a piece about sake. They weren't bad. They were, those early pieces were good. I, I was flying blind a little bit. I didn't know what I know now. I mean, now I know a lot, but it, I, I mean, I knew in a more amateurish sense. Well, what, what are, what do you know now, 10 years on and, and as sitting as the food and drinks? Editor. Well, I mean, I've now eaten all over the place. I mean, I, I've been to Argentina with Francis Malman and Italy with Massimo Batura and South Korea at a monastery with John Kwan and Copenhagen and Mexico and Australia with Rene Redzepi. And so, I mean, that's just that's just part of the work I do now. So I travel around and learn from these people, eat the food. Um, but also for Esquire, I do the best new restaurants list now. And that means traveling all over the country and best bars, which I do in tandem with Kevin Sintumong and other other writers' voices we bring in. Um, so um, for those of the, for those yeah. who don't know, part of part of the job is writing but what also encompasses the food and drinks editor position what do i do yeah yeah okay so i i have a column every issue it doesn't appear in the issue that best new restaurants appears in because that would be almost like an overabundance of food coverage i think but i, I have a column it's usually a couple pages it could be about right right now the one on the newsstands at the moment is about um this kind of golden age of middle eastern food we're in the midst of philadelphia Los Angeles and Washington, D.C., many Oakland. Um, the recent one was about kind of next wave steakhouses. I've written about the martini. I've written about mezcal. Um, and then I do these annual lists, best bars with Kevin, best new restaurants I do all by myself. <sighs> it's kind of an ordeal. It, it, it sounds fun, but believe me, it's, it's, we'll, it's a... We'll it's, get to that in a second. Yeah. And... and uh, we also do entertaining packages in the spring and the fall that are sort of about home entertaining and uh, beautiful, delicious things to have in your pantry and your freezer. And, and do you, you know. cr do you craft the vid? Like, do you focus what Esquire wants to say about 
food. Because yeah. I mean, some of you, I mean, the Middle Eastern one was Middle Eastern chefs have never been hungry to tell their stories. Woke restaurants might keep San Francisco from becoming a tech bro paradise. Yeah, and I didn't it, write that. That's those are the online headlines, by the yeah. way. But, the, but but the type but, yeah. of stories that are being told. Yeah, I, I I drive that. I do. Yeah, I mean, I obviously keep in touch with Kevin Sintamong and Jay Fielden and Michael Haney and everybody to make sure that they're on board with whatever the next idea is. I when I when I you know when I came into to Esquire they didn't have a food writer because my predecessor died Joshua Joshua Zersky who I thought was one of the most brilliant prose stylists around I did not always agree with the man let me tell you I don't think anyone did I would say most didn't <laughs> he was a volatile and divisive figure in many ways but I think absolutely gifted and brilliant and a, a delight to talk to the few times I crossed paths with him um, uh, and. Um, you know, he, he, he died, and then um, the, the mass head of the magazine changed hands. Jay Fielden took over, and um, they had a gap. They didn't have somebody covering food and wine, which is part of the franchise. It's, it's, it's dug into the DNA of what Esquire does. And um, I felt it was actually quite clear what the magazine needed to do, which was to cover all these people, all these incredible men and women around the world, um, changing the conversation about food, cooking delicious things, but also creating the conversation, whether it's, you know, Massimo Batura, David Chang, uh, Dominique Crenn. I wanted essentially to populate the magazine with these people because um, I think they're dynamic cultural figures. So to do a story like the Middle Eastern uh, food piece is also a way to bring in, you know, uh, Michael Solomonoff from Philadelphia and, and hear what he has to say, Ori Minaj from uh, Los Angeles. And um, I felt like the magazine for a while there wasn't really plugged into that. You know, like our chef of the year last year was Ignacio Matos from Estella, Flora Bar, and Cafe Ultra Paradiso. I just thought that was a, that was this just classic Esquire choice. You know, like he represents what the magazine's about, what our audience is about in many ways. Um, He's a cool guy. He's an incredible chef. He's got a vision. His food is so distinctive. So I thought let's let's start to honor honor that and be part of the conversation in that way. Um, and also, you know, the the piece on San Francisco and what Daniel Patterson is doing with restaurants like the Afa, Besharam, and Kaya. You know, it's also then a piece about gentrification and uh, social shifts in that city, and um, a chef who's trying to do the right thing. We're going to take a quick musical break. Oh, cool. And then we're going to be back with the 2018 list. Ah. Here on It's Snack- on. It is on. Here on Snacky Tunes on HeritageRadioNetwork.org.
This program is brought to you by Jules Sous Vide. My name is Katie Mosman Wadler. I'm the executive director of HRN and a real life Jewel user. When you cook with Jewel, there's zero guesswork. So steak, chicken, seafood, turkey, vegetables, and eggs all come out exactly the way you like them. The Parrot app is intuitive to use and preloaded with all the recipes you'll need, and it has a great visual doneness guide. Jewel is awesome for holiday cooking. It's easy to cook for a crowd, and it's perfectly precise, so you can focus on entertaining without worrying about checking food temps while Jewel does all the work. You can try out new cuts fearlessly. One of the best things I ever made sous vide was a juicy, tender heritage goose with juniper berries, and it was life changing. And pro tip, Jewel is small and packs easily, so you can sneak it along on your holiday travels to be this season's food hero everywhere you go. With Jewel, you get perfect food every time. To get yours, visit chefsteps.com slash Jewel and use code HRN, as in Heritage Radio Network, to get $15 off for a limited time. That's chefsteps.com slash J-O-U-L-E, code HRN. And happy holidays from all of us at Team HRN. As you mentioned, Josh passed away in 2015, yeah. and the restaurant and food sections went away, including including the list. Yeah, he did. Much. He did one list um, in over which he had complete control in 2014, I believe, and he picked the Cecil in Harlem as his number one, which was a prescient and, and kind of brilliant choice. Um, not necessarily a restaurant on everybody's radar at that point. Uh, Chef JJ. Uh, Johnson from the Cecil is going on to big things. Um, his list was really cool, that that one he did. He had Take Root. Um, and then he died, and I gather what he had done was he had sent a lot of his choices to his editors so they knew once he had picked already. Uh, but he didn't get to write it, unfortunately. And, and so I guess they had a different writer's from around the country who are affiliated with Esquire file those different, uh, you know, squibs about all the different restaurants. Um, then they just didn't do it for a couple of years. And, uh, last year we brought it back and I mean, it gets incredible traffic and it has, it really has a lot of impact. It's pretty amazing. I, I was, I was taken aback when I saw how strongly people react to it. Well, A, people love a list. People love a list. In general. And then also people like to be completists. And also the restaurant landscape is so overwhelming yeah. that if you're going to narrow it down, you might as well narrow it down on this. You can tell someone that you ate all 18 restaurants or, <laughs> or whatever it is. But when- I squeeze in a lot. I try to find other ways to squeeze other ones in because I'm ultimately kind of just an enthusiast more than a critic. Right. But, um, yeah, that, you know, there's also people – quibble about that you rank them, you know, because we do rank them 1 to 19 in the list coming out. People have a winner. It just it just catalyzes it, you know, know, when people see the numbers. I would say that the top seven on my list uh, this year and maybe the top five or six last year were all, almost interchangeable. They were all wonderful and all could have been number one in different ways. But um, you do have to – you do have to affix numbers to them and that – that creates a fascinating sort of uh, intellectual game. It's almost like uh, this game of chess you play with yourself. It's very strange. But, um, yeah, people love it. We also have a chef of the year, a rising star of the year, a pastry chef of the year. This next, this coming list, we have the new list. We have uh, a pop-up of the year, a restaurant resurrection of the year, <laughs> a, a beverage director of the year, wine guru of the year. We, like, I, I really do like to spread the love. <laughs> Which is amazing because the, the the way that these impact restaurants is, is short, it's very hard to uh, devalue how much this really can make or break a restaurant. If you get on a few best of lists, you can just carry on for years. It does have an impact. I mean, the Michelin stars do. Certainly the local critics like Pete Wells. You know, I'm that, so, um, it, you know, when you, when you love it, I mean, essentially it's almost a form of delirium you're going for. Uh, you're going for this kind of euphoria that feels like levitation. That feels like the clash at the Hollywood play in when I was 14. I'm serious. You're going for that sense of elation. And the problem is it's rare. It doesn't happen all the time. A lot of times you fly to a city, you eat five dinners and you know, not really, I'll have three dinners max, but I mean, that's 
pushing it. And 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 you don't. I like how you say that. Like two dinners is absolutely normal, but two, three. Two, th- you don't even food. Eat, right? Two dinners is two, just two and five, but three. I have two dinners at you're home. Like looking, you're like looking, the, <laughs> looking around the room. Like, am I right? No one. Yeah, sure. I have seven <laughs> breakfasts this morning. Um, but uh, <laughs> I mean, that's normal. So uh, yeah, I I. I um, when you feel it, like last year when I went to Felix Trattoria in Venice, California, Venice Beach, uh, as my poor editor, my poor suffering editors know, it was the last restaurant I went to, and the list was actually already in, w- in a way set, okay? Um, and uh, I was down in Laguna Beach, California, when my parents have retired, and uh, I had my parents and my two older kids, Margo and Toby, the twins weren't here yet. And um, I said, you know what? Uh, I gotta, I gotta check out this place, Felix. I just keep hearing so many wonderful things, and I, I, I gotta drive up from Orange County to Venice. And you're all coming, and I'm paying. I've made an early reservation. We're doing this. And there were a lot of, there was a lot of tension in the car because there was this horrible Southern California traffic, political if I, arguments. If I might pause for a second, yeah. um, I have dragged uh, many friends and a very patient girlfriend on food adventures, and they're always like, <laughs> "Fuck you." I know. They're always like, "They're not grateful." The, well, they're like, they're literally fuck you right up until the point, and then it's like, "Okay, fine." But usually, it's more like, "I can't believe we're doing this again." Yeah, that's like, the thing. was was like, it, "Do you really need this?" And you're kind of like. I do, and I'm so sorry, but I also don't want to do it alone because I can't eat everything That's by the myself. Thing. That's the thing. I need your mouths yeah. and your stomachs. Josh, Josh Ozerski <laughs> had a great piece somewhere at one point about how uh, a food writer, somebody who would drive five hours to get a taco or something in, in the middle of the night just because he heard about it. You know, I, I mean, I do that, and I drive my kids crazy. And- but it's, it's the same thing like people who, I mean, when, you know, when I was in the thralls of music and you're going out five nights a week and... Yeah. You know, even now I still get nervous. I'm going to miss the headliner. I've been going to shows for 20 plus years, and I see set time, and I was like, I think I'm not going to. I think I'm going to be late, and I don't <laughs> right. even know how I, I know go. a really good therapist <laughs> you need to talk to. We'll but, work this out. But but for you, but for driving them to Felix and yeah. and and for taking them there, and you're like, what do you, what's the conversation you're having with yourself? All I was like, why, what? I'm a crazy. Why am I doing this? I should have met LA friends. All these people, all my family's just complaining in the car, and we're having political arguments. And my dad's like, the traffic's horrible. And I, you know, and then we pull up, and we valet park, we trundle into this. We're just like the the, the monsters. Like we're just this grumpy. You know, we all walk in there like some Edward Gorey cartoon or something. And 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 we um, get seated, and I order a Negroni. And then this focaccia comes. Now, Evan Funky's focaccia is famous. And everyone went silent. It was just crispy and puffy at the same time, strafed with olive oil and salt. It was almost like a savory donut. And it was like we were suddenly in church. We all started tearing it apart, taking communion with this this focaccia, which they call sphinxione or something. And... um, my daughter Margot is uh, now 16. We call her the bread bandit because she loves bread so much. Um, um, which I actually, I will admit, I actually stole that from John Gray from Ghetto Gastro because he's known as the bread bandit and, uh, and among his friends. And Mar- Margot just loves bread. And she said, Daddy, Daddy, this bread is amazing. Can we get more? And I was like, it's pretty good, isn't it? And then we got some stuff, squash blossoms, some pork meatballs, and then the pasta. And I mean, we were in a, we were just in ecstasy. We were practically we were all hugging and crying at the end of this meal. I am not kidding. We were like, "I love you, Dad," <laughs> and uh, it was that good. So, at a certain point, Margot, my daughter, leaned over to me during that, and she said, "Daddy, how can you not make this number one?" And I was like, "Sweetie, you're right. That's a really good point. I mean, if we're feeling this way, of course, after course, everything is perfect, and the mood is great. Um, bingo." Call my editors. I'm so sorry. You're not. So, you're, first off, first you have off, to redo the layout. You're not sorry. So I'm not sorry because if I feel it, I wasn't totally sure yet. And once you feel it, and I felt it this year with our number one. The same thing. And the craziest thing, this craziest thing happened. Would are we at the point in the interview where I can say what number one is? This yeah. Is, okay. I and, still. Well, actually, before you say what number one is, I want to when. <laughs> what did you What did you take away from after doing your first two seven two thousand seventeen that you went into for the two thousand eighteen? Besides the feeling of that, you can refine what you found in Felix. You can find for number one. 
But what did you take away, learn lessons on how mm. to approach this year's list versus last year? Listen is the main thing. You have to listen. To whom? To the scouts on the ground, to the local folks. Like, it, like um, we, ha we don't have an unlimited budget. I hate to break it to, to America. What? <laughs> what? This is print media 2018. I mean, we, it, 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 you know, I am well supported by my, my colleagues here, but we, it's not unlimited. I, I don't actually go to every state. It is impossible to pay for that. It is impossible for me to have the time to do that or the bandwidth in my body eat that much so um i have four children i i do trips in between parenting and in between all sorts of you know little league games and piano recitals and stuff what that means is it really comes down to due diligence it really comes down to research and how do we allocate our resources wisely so so i do a whole lot of emailing and texting and calling and reading online and figure out what cities really seem to have something happening where can where is it good where does it make sense to divert my resources um, we do actually, I do actually have scouts, believe it or not, who are unpaid friends who, uh, my friend Jason Tesaro is one. If Jason Tesaro is based in Richmond, Virginia, but he's a sommelier and writer, he travels around a lot and, uh, I trust his opinions and, um, I don't pick a place because of him, but I will visit a place because of him. So, and then if I have the same reaction, so he went to Minneapolis for the Super Bowl or pre Super Bowl to do a piece for Esquire online. And he was smitten with Minneapolis and the food scene and the bar scene there. And he's like, Jeff, you know, you're a schmuck if you don't make the effort to go up there. And I was like, okay, okay. Also, uh, in Boston, he, he reported from Boston in a way that had a direct impact on this list because I hate Boston. I'm sorry, but I, 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 I got to blurt it out there. But I still have to do my job and be honest. So I went to Minneapolis, and Jason was right. I was floored. I mean, I, I have many different represent, representatives of that city in this list, uh, not just in the best new restaurants list, but different chef awards and stuff. Um, when I hit a city, I drive people bonkers. I mean, my friends get driven insane because I change my mind almost hourly about where we're going to eat. Okay. So I'm not kidding. So in a city like Los Angeles, that's a huge pain in the ass for people who thought they were going to be eating 10 minutes from their house and are now eating an hour and a half from their house. So like, you know, um, my friend Jeremy Toback and Fabienne Toback, I mean, they, they are, they are my, uh, my, my comrades in this. And they were just like, seriously, you changed your mind again? <laughs> no, we're not going there. We're actually going the other, other part of town. Um, but a lot of that is based on, you know, your ears to the, to the ground, your ears to the tracks. Like I, I'll hit a city and think, so I talk to as many people as I can. I mean, not just food writers and chefs and stuff, but just local folks. What do you really like? What do you, you know, people who have some connection to the food community. When I hit San Antonio, changed my mind very quickly because I heard, frankly, some bad, some bad stuff about one place and I changed my mind. Um, I had also heard some good stuff about Carnitas Lonja, this Carnitas place right off the freeway. Oh, man. For a guy who loves Mexican food, a guy from originally from LA, oh, I was in heaven. So and we, we can say that is the first one you named that number. So ten, I'm revealing ten list, number ten is Carnitas Lona in San Antonio. Now let me tell you. So this is part of the, what's fun about a list like this is like it's really up to me, you know. And and, and food and wine, Jordana Rothman, and and um, you know, well, we won't mention our men's magazine competitor, but I mean, uh, uh, the people who do this, we're we're like a, we're we're a, a small weird club of people who, who travel around and go to all these places. And you sort of realize a certain point, like, I love a fancy night out. I'm not going to apologize for that, okay? I, I mean, I, I, my wife and it's, I love... It's how your dad raised you. It's, you know, we, we, come, to these, we come to this task with, with all different realms of knowledge and experience and memory, and that, that plays itself out. That's one reason... Your son is going to be in so much, I was like, I only love a tasting menu. Even though... <laughs> no, he doesn't. He even doesn't. though his dad would say otherwise. He's like, unless, unless it's got 18 courses and other side things, I... Did, did we eat? Did we eat? Yeah. But this is one reason it's ex extremely important. There's a diverse array of voices in this, in this space because you need to have all different kinds of experiences brought to bear on these decisions. Um, I do like caviar. I do like a night out. I mean, we picked uh, Bar Kren, Dominique Kren's uh, punishingly expensive wine bar in San Francisco. I'm sorry. I loved it. I also loved Carnitas Lonja, where I think I spent 12 bucks. So, I mean, and it was too much food to eat. 
Uh, Alejandro Paredes, the chef there, worked in fine dining for a while, gave up, decided to open a place. You know what they make? Give you three guesses. They make carnitas. He makes carnitas. That's it. Okay. He makes incredible, slow-cooked, basically carnitas like pork confits, cooked in its own fat. He makes incredible tortillas, the salsas, some guac. That's it. I think he makes chorizo too. And so so you go and I'm like, I think I'll have the carnitas. And <laughs> and uh, I sit in the back in a picnic table, beautiful South Texas day. And I was like, all right, this is bliss. Like to me, that was every bit as beautiful as being in Noma or something, you know. And that's not a stretch. I don't mean that in some kind of weird metaphorical way. I actually mean I was in heaven, okay, as much as – I was at Bar Cren, you know, so um, I just thought I respected so much. Uh, Bill Addison at Eater compared it to uh, certain uh, principles and practices in Japan where a person will specialize in nothing but making the rice for sushi for decades, for like decades, right? And and Alejandro at Carnitas Lona, I mean, he has the same kind of uh, dedication and uh, – narrowed focus which is like what is the best absolute best carnitas you know another so. another one that makes it on here is uh missy from yes which is just yes. for people who don't know it's um lilia miss robbins a second thing it's just pasta and all yes. the different types of beautiful pasta and their instagram is so much fun because you had no idea that many shapes but again this <laughs> kind of very narrow singular focus she could have done just another lilia yeah. or anything like that but she just zeroed in I'm very, I'm very drawn to, I'm very receptive to, vulnerable to, that kind of vision, that kind of focus. I like a restaurant that really knows what it is. You know, just like when I see a movie, you know, there's a certain kind of movie you see and you just know it's Wes Anderson or you know it's Spike Jones or, you know, you just know because you can because of the aesthetic and and that that director knows what he or she is doing and same with a, a, a work of music or work of poetry. Um, I don't necessarily like menus that are a mishmash, and I, and I and I really like menus that are focused. Now, Missy, the new Missy Robbins place, we we also name her our chef of the year. She's our uh, my second choice. Uh, in last year was Ignacio Matos. Now this year's number one chef of the year is Missy Robbins. So well deserved. I think so, and I think in a way she represents this moment so beautifully and perfectly. She encapsulates what we want to eat. What are, she's almost clairvoyant. She's like telepathically knowing that this is the restaurant we, we want right now. I love Lilia. Last year, Lily was a little too old for me to include in, in our list, but I wanted to recognize her. It hurt uh, to leave it off. And um, uh, Misi, I went to like just under the wire. I mean, it was one of the last restaurants I went to. And... There's an experience you go, have at Lilia as much as you like it where you're just like – you get through the pastas and now you have like a roast chicken coming or something. You're like, oh, man, I'm full. And I love how she pared down the menu at the new place to just these beautiful roasted vegetables and – vegetable dishes and pasta. Like I described to my kids, the Margot and Toby and my older kids, I said there's a restaurant that was sort of founded on the, the faith in the sort of binding principle of noodles – butter and cheese and they're like daddy can we go there <laughs> you know for a kid they're like so <laughs> I'll, I'll bring you leftovers i'll make it for breakfast yeah well, I, I, I did in fact actually i did it was great that's one reason that's one, one way you know an italian restaurant is really good if the frittata is good the next day but um but uh that might be that might be a first claim <laughs> i've read that in zero books <laughs> yeah no, that's, it's um take it from a, a, a frenchman um but but uh the the um the uh Let's talk about the number one. Because yeah, okay. I, because so that, I, I, I made you pause. That's fine. To, to frame Making this. people lit, wait here. Wait. For the number one, dun, dun, it, dun, dun, it felt, well, I'm going to let you say it. it's your It's your thing, but it gave you the same feeling as it did for Felix. Yes. So explain. It was set it, also. Set it up for us. The very last restaurant I went to. Again, my editor. Are you like the President Trump of restaurant? <laughs> oh, God. That's horrible. <laughs> no, I, I, I went to. Um, it's it's Angler in San Francisco. Angler is from Josh Gaines, who has Saison in San Francisco. If you know Saison, it's a three Michelin star tasting menu. I, like many of my colleagues in food writing, just loathe tasting menus. Unless they're made by Corey Lee at Banu or Massimo Batura or Dominique Crenn or Josh Gaines at Saison. Saison 
Angler is kind of like a more casual junior version of the principles of Saison in terms of here is an antelope steak. Here is caviar and bread. Here is um, a perfectly cooked piece of fish. Like everything is about the thing itself. It's almost like that concept from poetry of like, I write about the thing itself. Obviously, a great deal of preparation, cooking, and thought goes into it. But a lot of what Josh does is sourcing. It's really about getting the ultimate best ingredient right now, that classic California cuisine thing. It goes back to Alice Waters. And, you know, he, he's the latest uh, avatar of that, exemplar of that. And he brings it to fruition with such elan and such spirit. And you just feel so at home. Um, and, uh, you know, I was with some friends there and everyone had the same spirit. We were just like levitated. And the funny thing that happened when I was at Angler was a guy leaned in at a certain point. One of our servers, he said, I don't think you remember me, but I served you at Felix. I'm not kidding. And I was like, that's very strange you say that. Because at that moment, I was thinking, holy shit, this has to be number one. I'm going to mess up my editors all over again. This is just too good. And, and I was like, you worked at Felix. And he's like, yes, I, I know, you know, I know who you are. And, and it was like, and I thought this guy is uh, whoever, like somebody should hire him for next year. <laughs> They're like, and just call me like, are you working anywhere right now? <laughs> I'm on a deadline and I really want to screw everything up. Can I come eat? There was also just this beautiful, um, like a lot of places have these live fires, that wood, wood fire, the Francis Moment thing going on. This has, a, this has, a, has that. And there's just this beautiful wood smoke. It's almost like they manage the fragrance in the in the room. The the servers all have beautiful suits. Um, like even when they're like your table's not quite ready yet, you don't go wait at some crowded bar where everybody's elbowing you and there's a bunch of like douchey bros you have to contend with. You just get you actually just go to this kind of other beautiful wood table that's you know you stand at and sort of hang out at feel completely. Uh, like it's unobtrusive. No one's in your face and you just sip your cocktail and you have this view of the Bay Bridge. I'm not just judging the food anywhere, by the way. I mean, I think some uh, other people have this role with restaurants are much more inclined to just judge the food itself. I'm not. I'm really into the whole experience. And I felt this was holistically as close to perfect as you could get. Way too much 80s music. Josh, work on the playlist a little bit. We all complained about that. It was just like, wow, this restaurant is perfect, but do we really need to hear Huey Lewis in the news right now? It's like how so. <laughs> Sakamoto went in and did the oh, yeah. playlist for Kajitsu. That was so cool. One of the last things that I'd like to touch on is the diversity of the cities from 2017 to 2018. Yeah, um, it's it's a it's a good mix. It's yeah. it's not just you know your your primary markets. Uh, how did yes. how did you? I know that you have scouts on the ground, but was that a cognizant thing to to showcase these other cities to make to, to shine a light? Like as you said to me earlier, Minneapolis is maybe more exciting than New York right now. How are you finding that, and what do you think is contributing to these cities being that much more competitive in, in these types of best of lists? That's a huge question. It's so, so interesting. Okay, when you're doing the due diligence, part of what I'm also looking for is stories. I'm looking for, for chefs with fascinating stories behind the restaurants, stories they're telling through the food and the, and the place. Uh, Kate Williams' Lady of the House in Detroit is a perfect example. I wanted... Uh, I, I actually had her food when she cooked at a kind of a little dinner in, in Brooklyn. And I, I heard her cooking was exceptional. And she was got a great spirit. And I was like, I know I need to go to Detroit and try, try this place. Um, so I really felt this year that the excitement, I felt it last year, but more acutely, more presently this year, that the excitement is in Minneapolis and Detroit. And Houston, I mean, we all know that now. Houston, San Antonio, Dallas is exploding. Um, that's not um, that's not a figment of our imaginations now. I think a lot of what happened is the creativity is moving to those cities because it's more affordable. It's just more affordable to open a restaurant. It's very hard to run a restaurant and make a profit in New York City right now. And if you do, a lot of times you have to do something kind of traditional – uh, something that's a surefire winner. Um, it's harder to take risks. I mean, I don't think a restaurant like Petra and the Beast, for instance, in Dallas, Misty Norris's restaurant, one of the coolest freaking places I've ever walked into. I was just smitten as soon as I walked in. It's in this old gas station in East Dallas, a gas station from like the 30s. looks like something from Grapes of Wrath. And 
you walk in, she's got skulls and anime, and she's cranking Rage Against the Machine and Nirvana, and she's serving all everything in the like the little paper boats that you get chili cheese fries. But but the food was, I mean, it could have been at one of Rene Redzepi's restaurants. These incredible experiments with fermentation and aging and um, just beautiful combinations of things. I mean, unbelievable creativity. Misty Norris, I'm telling you, I mean, this is, is going to be a major figure, right? And she couldn't do this in New York. I guarantee it. She wouldn't, she would have so much trouble making a living. She would have to do it in a, like a little stand or something maybe or maybe one of these food markets. Gotham West or something, which is cool, but it's not it's not the same as having her own place. Um, high High in Minneapolis. I mean, this is an incredible Southeast Asian food, and it's beautiful, big, sunny space that in New York. I mean, uh, the the rent would be hundreds of thousands of dollars. So, um, Voyager in Ferndale, Michigan, on the you know uh, north of Detroit uh, proper, north of the city, you have. Um, Justin Tutla and Jennifer Jackson worked at uh, La Bernadette and Prune, two of the greatest New York restaurants ever. Uh, you know, in Detroit with this, this seafood restaurant that's as good as something you'd encounter in Copenhagen. And could they afford to do that here or in San Francisco? Probably not. So that's what it is. It's economic. It, it's like the create. It's, it's happening in music too. It's happening in all, all realms of creative enterprise, that the energy is moving to these other cities, Pittsburgh, etc., because you can. You want to be able to do what your vision is, you know? Well, Jeff, thank you for joining us Yeah, today. man, thanks a lot. That was we're, sorry I babbled so much. No, that was perfect. Oh, do we have any listeners left? They're probably like, get me out of here. We have all the <laughs> listeners left. Um, where can people find the list, pick up the copy, see it online? Esquire.com, pick it up, pick it up at an airport, pay, on paper, I highly recommend it. It's a pleasurable experience. Pleasure is, is the objective. Pleasure is the objective. Uh, thanks <laughs> for listening to this week's episode of Snacky Tunes. Uh, we will be back with an all-new episode sometime in the future. Yeah, yeah like, I want to come back and talk about my book someday. Man. Yes. We, oh, yes. I, oh, please. Hungry. Hungry. Comes out in the summer. It's a whole book about Rene Redzepi that I've been working on for years. Okay, well, that's, I finally finished. That's the tease. Well, <laughs> I'm well, promoting myself. Sorry. Well, no, well, we we love it too. That just means we get to have another conversation <laughs> I'd love again. To. Uh, thanks for listening here on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We talk about food. We talk about music with musical dudes. Finger on the pulse, snacky tunes. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food Radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.